The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Are there any more questions on excuse me, Pastor 17? I understand there was quite a buzz out in the, in the hall there. <laughs> any more questions on 17 before we move on? How does this uh, true bet or this wager differ from the one in the Kalama Sutta? It, it seems like there's also four, or it talks about uh, the same sort of... Um, it's somewhat different in the Kalama Sutta. He says basically if you... And we could talk all afternoon about the Kalama Sutta. Um, but basically if you realize that your actions are shaped by your intentions and then you decide to practice the Brahma Viharas as a way of ensuring that your motivation is going to be skillful with regard to ever, everybody you meet, then you can be assured that if there is rebirth, you will, and there's a reward for your actions, okay, then you come back okay. If there's none, at least, okay, you've, you've lived a good life now. That's basically what it comes down to. Here he's saying more that if you, if you actually adhere to the idea that there is no rebirth, you're setting yourself up for a lot of trouble. So I guess you you could say by inference that if you don't practice the Brahma Viharas, you're setting yourself up for a lot of trouble, even well, though that's not again, the it's, ultimate it's, goal. You're, 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 you're practicing Brahma Viharas basically so that you can... I mean, it is possible to practice Brahma Viharas and then lose it, you know, which is not what the Buddha is talking about. There's a cartoon I was thinking of doing. This guy, you know, sh- shouting out at somebody behind his wheel, and it says, you know, two weeks of Brahma Viharas lost after one hour on the freeway. You know? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're trying to develop the Brahma Viharas so you can stick with them all the time as your motivation. And when you're sure that your motivation is skillful, then you're, you're, you're secure. Now, is that enough to reach Nibbana? No, just for a good life, just for a good rebirth. Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, that's all he says. I mean, you remember he's talking to the Kalamas. They're not dedicated to practice at all yet. They're still kind of shopping around. And he said, okay, if you practice the Brahma Viharas, and this is a good practice for people who are still shopping around, you know, if it so happens that there is a life after death and there is, you know, rewards for good actions, you'll, you'll be acting on good motivations, there will be rewards. And if there is none, then, you know, you're living a good life now. There are some who argue that passage like the, the Metta Sutta uh, suggests that maybe you can reach Nibbana through Metta practice, although there's more going on there than just... There's a lot going on more than just Metta. And it also involves letting go of views and all these other things that you've got to do. When the Buddha says you can... You know, just, just the Brahma Viharas on their own can get you various levels of, of, of Brahma worlds. Which he then goes on to be very clear about that these are an inferior... And if you're a goal, if you combine the Brahma Viharas with the seven factors for awakening, which include analysis of qualities and, and basically the wisdom factor, okay, then you can you can go higher. But the Brahma Viharas on their own will not do it. There was a I don't want to name names, but there's a an, an English professor who was laying claims that you know the Brahma Vihara practice can take you all the way, and he's claiming that you read between the lines of some of the suttas and you can see that the Buddha is talking about, he's talking about the Brahma world, but what he really means is Nirvana. He was being interviewed by a tricycle a while back, and so I asked him, asked him about this. Say, what about these other suttas where the Buddha definitely says, Brahma world is an inferior goal? Um, and it, because it was one of those online interviews where you write questions and write answers, didn't write the answer. <laughs> so. But I understand there's a lot more of this going around right now than you know, the Brahma Vihara is a total practice in and of itself. Yeah, we've had speakers here that make that claim, or one in particular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you support it? Well, with the the Metta Sutta and um, maybe the, I think you were just referring to the Digha Nikaya 13, mm-hmm. is it? maybe with some of that, um, I don't remember the exact argument. Well, the, the Metta Sutta requires a lot more than just Metta. Question back here. Yeah.
every once in a while, or perhaps frequently, um, the scriptures seem to um, uh, uh, reveal their uh, their uh, the influence of the Brahma, of the uh, of Hinduism of the of the uh, of the Brahmanic tradition from which Buddhism arises or 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 in the soil of which mm-hmm. Buddhism grows uh, cyclic existence we're talk this this whole this material is about cyclic existence if we want to really abstract have an abstract term mm-hmm. um, the thing that I find puzzling Oh, I'm sorry. The thing that I find puzzling is that in the Bhagavad Gita, there's a big emphasis on relinquishing the fruits of action. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly the contrary. Mm-hmm. And yet, it seems steeped in, 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 the, in this overlay that pre-existed the historical Buddha. Mm-hmm. This, this ideological overlay. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I, I, well, I think there's, there's more going on in India than we tend to believe or tend to know. I mean, look at the, the, the Buddhist texts contain examples of the philosophical debates that were going on at that time. And there were several schools of thought that said, look, rebirth is a bunch of crock. There is no, re, you know, there is no reward for bad actions or no reward for bad actions. There's no reward for good actions and... You know, no, no punishment for bad actions, so you just might as well go ahead and do what you want. But that, that's a, that's a, 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 there's a presumption there. The presumption is that we're inherently bad without... No, no, pre- that particular one is that you can just have a good time and there's no punishment. Well, that's not, if, if the, that means that... I mean, if, if having a good time is not necessarily synonymous with, with immoral behavior... The way, the, the way they taught it was that there was no such thing as moral or immoral. Just do what you like. But what I'm trying to—the point I'm trying to make—is the Buddha was not just picking up a cultural influence without thinking about it, because the question, the cultural influences, were being questioned. And the question of, question of is there a rebirth? Even if there is rebirth, is there some sort of karmic law that goes on? And there are a lot of people who are saying no by that time. Well, the, it's interesting because the, the the rhetoric of this passage, with the, the, you know, using that very commonplace metaphor of of roll, rolling the dice, mm-hmm. almost indicates that the Buddha is temporizing already. He's already uh, downscale. You know, he he he's making this a smaller issue, a more. Uh, a le- he's demystifying the whole concept. Well, on the one hand, he does want to make it make it. Uh, clear that when you make an action, when you decide what kind of action you're going to do, there is a wager. But that's a, isn't that already stepping it down somewhat? Well, if, if you were an, an omniscient being, then there wouldn't be a wager. He's, he's talking, because he, from his point of view, he's already had the experience of awakening. He knows there is such a thing as rebirth from his experience of awakening. Now, he can't take that experience out and show it to you. And he's pointing out to you that Unlike Christians that say, all you have to do is just believe with 100% your heart and soul, you're going to be okay, regardless of what other doubts you might have. He says, okay, admit the fact that you've got these doubts you don't know yet. So in a position of someone who doesn't know, it's going to be a wager. And when he's talking about conviction, he's not asking that you pretend that you know something you don't know. You have to be upfront about the fact, I don't know this, but I do have to make assumptions. And that's what a wager is. So he's not trivializing him. He's just saying this is what the human condition is for someone who hasn't had awakening yet. This is why when they talk about choice theory, so much of it is about gambling. Question here? I have a suspicion that, like you just said, he's awakened, he knew. Mm-hmm. But the last fetter is conceit. Mm-hmm. And Westerners especially have not anywhere near gotten rid of that fetter. Mm-hmm. And if the self is still there, rebirth is nonsense because it involves such gross improbabilities. 
given the body dies and the brain is connected to the body. Yeah, well, if you assume that you are basically a physical being with this consciousness that's kind of a side effect of having a body, then, then you know, you've, once you've defined yourself that way, then you've defined yourself in a way that the rebirth could not happen. Yeah. Now the Buddha is saying, basically you have to learn how not to define yourself in those terms and look at the rebirth as a process. Yeah, I think conceit is a key to it, Yeah. Mm-hmm. which doesn't, isn't talked about much. I just thought of something. We're always making wages with a life. We just don't know it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you start a job. You think it's going to be good. You start a marriage. We know 50% of them fail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you start out thinking, you know, mm-hmm. and you're, you're always wagering with everything you do. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's an important part of seeing the uncertainty of human life. You know, you make, you make some plans for your old age, and whoop, heart attack, you're gone. That's it. Yes. Question here. Well, I, I guess I'm a, an agnostic about rebirth, or I've also toyed with the idea that Christians go to heaven, and people who believe in rebirth are bo- reborn, and people who believe in a ghost life return as ghosts. It seems possible. So, if you don't believe in this stuff, it won't happen. But <laughs> I, I guess I, I, part of what what I wonder about rebirth is like, well, if if you make the statement that all people will all humans are capable of reaching nirvana or whatever, then if someone is born with a serious disability, they are clearly alive. They don't always live for very long. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The only way they could reach nirvana, I would think, would be is Get if they're going to be reborn. Mm-hmm. Because some people do not have the mental, mm-hmm. let alone, or the physical capacity. Mm-hmm because of birth defects or because of malnutrition when they're three years old, that sort of thing. Over here. I mean, there are teachings about rebirth that in the Buddhist time which did not accept karma. That there was this part of you that willy-nilly was going to be reborn had nothing to do with your actions. And when you, when you actually look at the record, I mean, so many people say, well, you know, the Buddha picked up rebirth from his culture because he, that was one of his things he didn't really think about. He just kind of stuck it in his teachings because he believed it or everybody else believed it. And that's not the case. It was, you know, a, it was a hot topic. It was like global warming or something. And everybody was talking about it. You know? And there were positions on all sides. There were the deniers, you know, and the... And the and the ones who said, okay, rebirth happens, but karma is no way involved. It's just whatever, you know, again, it's like a kind of a throw of the dice. Or if you were, like the Brahmins held, if you're a Brahmin this time around, you're going to be a Brahmin the next time around, and the next time around, there was no change. I mean, there are lots of different ways that you could see it. I mean, and, and you look at the, the cosmos that the Buddha describes, it's very different from the cosmos described in the Upanishads. Now, I was mentioning here the other night when they had this one belief that if you died, you went up to went up to the moon, and whatever food you had sent up by the sacrifice was were there waiting for you at the moon, and that's where the devas all live. And then when they run out of their food, they come back down. In fact, that's their explanation why the mood looks kind of chewed on, you know. <laughs> and then when you come down, how do you come down? You come down as rain, and then from rain you turn into a plant, and then whatever animal eats you, you get to be that animal. And if you're lucky, a human being eats you. And if you're not lucky, you know, a dog or something. And this is not the kind of rebirth the Buddha was teaching, you know. So it wasn't that he just picked it up from his society. I mean, he saw through his experience, that was one of the questions he asked, is there rebirth? And he had that experience in his his night of his awakening. And as he said afterwards, there are a lot of things he saw in the night of his awakening that he didn't talk about, but this is what he said was was important to know the Four Noble Truths. You had to talk about this. So I think it's, you know, it's good to stop and think about why he would, he would make that claim. And don't just kind of dismiss it. Traveling mic. The point that my mind is confused by is if there is no permanent identity, there is no soul, there's no whatever, so whatever it is that gets reborn is not me. Okay, so it's, why it's, am I concerned with... 
Hey, have that. universal compassion, okay? <laughs> no, but it's, again, he's, the Buddha doesn't say there is no entity. He doesn't say there is an entity. He says, stop thinking in terms of entities. Look at it in terms of a process. But even the way you talk about it, it, it sounds as if there is something that knows what it was before it gets into the new life. Well, again, it's, you, so you're, you're, if you think of yourself as a process now, you still have memories of what your earlier life, right? Yes. Okay. I mean, up back as far as I was born, but not before yeah. I was born. Well, and the, and the Buddha said he, he was able to remember back before that. Uh-huh. And the question of was it the same person or not the same person, that, that was one of those things where he said, don't ask the question. Okay. Because we're here to look at it in terms of a process. Now, we're looking here at, at the moment as a form of babancha to talk to people who are thinking, still thinking in those terms as a motivation to practice. That's right. what it comes down to. Okay. But when you look at his technical discussion of how to look at it so that you can get out of it, so then you've got to look at it as a process. And I can't stress enough, his teachings are strategic. Mm-hmm. He's not out there to say there is no self-body, you forget about any idea of self, you just don't got it. He's not saying that. He's saying, look, this is a skillful way to think at this level in the practice, this is a skillful way to think at this level of the practice. We're not here to figure out the actual nature of reality out there. We're here to fi- put an end to suffering. And this is how you do it. Okay. One more and we got to go. Oh, there's a, uh, an eminent a neuroscientist. In neuroscience, the, the genetic contents in the brain, neural patterns, dispositions inherited from bacteria and amoeba are still there in our brain. Mm-hmm. And, and one of them in particular said, it's, all that experience is in our brain of the entire revolution of life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It could be brought into, you know, going through the eons of lifetimes that he claims to have done mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the first watch. Who knows? There's Who knows what the, what the medium was? He's, that's one of those things he says. Evidence for that. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> okay, here's some more passages where the Buddha uses the idea of rebirth to, as an incentive to practice. From an inconceivable beginning comes transmigration, a beginning point is not evident. Though beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on. When you see someone who has fallen on hard times, overwhelmed with hard times, you should conclude, we too have experienced just this sort of thing in the course of that long, long time. When you see someone who is happy and well provided in life, you should conclude, we too have experienced just this sort of thing in the course of that long, long time. Why is that? It's from an inconceivable beginning. In other words, it's so long ago you can't even think about it. Long have you thus experienced stress, experienced pain, experienced loss, swelling in the cemeteries, enough to become disenchanted with all fabricated things, enough to become dispassionate, enough to become released. Okay, this, this, this reflection is to give you a sense of dispassion and disenchantment with the whole course of this, which it becomes an incentive to find release from all this. And it also teaches you compassion for those who are in bad states because you realize, I've been there. It also teaches you not to resent or be jealous of people who are wealthy or are well-provided, because you've been there too. Mm-hmm. We've all been there. We've all seen it. My teacher once said, you know, those sensual pleasures that you would really like to get, you've had them before. <laughs> the reason you want them is because you missed them. <laughs> he said, think about that for a few minutes. It's enough to make you really dispassionate. Because if you get them again, you're going to lose them again. So, and then you miss them again. It's samsara. Okay. And here's another case where sometimes you, you hear it told that the Buddha taught rebirth only when he was talking to dumb householders. Um, we're not spiritually advanced. Here's a case when he uses the people are on, who are on the verge of arahantship. Thirty monks from Pava. All wilderness dwellers, all goers, all triple robe wearers, which means all they had was one set of three robes. All still with fetters went to the Buddha and on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. Then the thought occurred to the Blessed One, these thirty monks from Pava are all still with fetters. What if I were to teach them the Dharma in such a way that in this very sitting their minds, through lack of clinging, would be released from fermentations? So he addressed the monks. Monks, yes, Lord, the monks responded. The Blessed One said, from an inconceivable beginning, etc. Okay. A beginning point is not evident, though beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on. What do you think, monks? Which is greater, the blood you have shed from having your heads cut off 
You've heard about the tears. Did you hear about the blood? Have <laughs> your heads cut off while transmigrating and wandering on this long, long time, or the water in the four great oceans? Mm. As we understand the Dhamma taught to us by the Blessed One, this is the greater, the blood we have shed from having our heads cut off while transmigrating and wandering this long, long time, not the water in the four great oceans. Excellent, monks, excellent. It's excellent that you thus understand the Dhamma taught by me. This is the greater, the blood you have shed from having your heads cut off while transmigrating and wandering this long, long time, not the water in the four great oceans. And this is where it really gets into the details. The blood you have shed when, being cows, you had your cow heads cut off. Long has this been greater than the water in the four great oceans. Just all the times you've been cows. Can you imagine? The blood you've shed when being water buffaloes, you had your water buffalo heads cut off. When being rams, you had your ram heads cut off. When being goats, you had your goat heads cut off. When being deer, you had your deer heads cut off. When being chickens... <laughs> this is one of my absolute favorite passages in the canon. <laughs> you had your chicken heads cut off. When being pigs, you had your pig heads cut off. I mean, the thought of being pigs that many times, doesn't that kind of get to you? Long has this been greater than the water in the four great oceans. And here we go again. The blood you have shed when arrested as thieves plundering villages, you had your heads cut off. When arrested as highway thieves, you had your heads cut off. When arrested as adulterers, do you realize you've committed that much adultery over this time? Long has this been greater than the water in the four great oceans. Why is that? From an inconceivable beginning comes transmigration. A beginning point is not evident. The beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on. Long have you thus experienced stress, experienced pain, experienced loss, swelling the cemeteries, enough to become disenchanted with all fabrications, enough to become dispassionate, enough to become released. I get chills every time I read this. That is what the Blessed One said. Gratified, the monks delighted in the Blessed One's words. And while this explanation was being given, the minds of the thirty monks from Pava, through lack of clinging, were released from fermentations, i.e. they became arahants. So it wasn't just, you know, ignorant villages that he was teaching. He, was te he taught people on the verge of arahantship. Again, this is a, a way of inducing a strong sense of dispassion and disenchantment. So next time you think about it, you know, drive by the ocean. Think about all the times you were a pig and you had your pig head cut <laughs> So these are two passages where the Buddha uses the teaching on rebirth. And using Babancha, talking about what you were in those times, to motivate you to practice. Here's another way, passage where the Buddha uses Babancha about past lifetimes. Monks, don't be afraid of acts of merit. This is another way of saying what is blissful, desirable, pleasing, enduring, charming. In other words, acts of merit. I am cognizant that having long performed meritorious deeds, I, excuse me, meritorious deeds, I have long experienced desirable, pleasing, enduring, charming results. Having developed a mind of goodwill for seven years and for seven aeons of contraction and expansion, I didn't return to this world. Whenever the aeon was contracting, I went to the stream, this realm of streaming radiance. When the aeon was expanding, you have, they have this view of, as you said, you said, the cyclic universe. I reappeared in an empty Brahma abode. There was the great Brahman, the unconquered conqueror, all-seeing and wielder of power. Then for thirty-six times I was Saka, the Deva king. For many hundreds of times I was a king, a wheel-turning emperor, a righteous king of Dharma, conqueror of the four corners of the earth, maintaining stable control over the countryside and down with the seven treasures. To say nothing of the times, I was a local king. The thought occurred to me, of what action of mine is this the fruit, of what action the result, that I now have such great power and might? Then the thought occurred to me, this is the fruit of my three types of action the result of three types of action that I have now. Such great power and might. In other words, generosity, self-control, and restraint. So the Buddha uses his memory of past lifetimes to you know, say, this, this, is how you, you know, this is what happens to people when they do this kind of action. That's how he gained his knowledge of karma. And finally, one more passage here. You've probably heard of the Jataka tales. Um, there is a lot of question about most of the Jataka tales. They, they, they're found in a particular collection in the Kudak and the Gaya. Uh, we were talking about it a little bit at lunch today, because many of the tales in the Jataka tales are actually pre-existing tales from Indian culture, about local heroes, local, local legends. Um, it may have been a way that as people became Buddhists, they still wanted to maintain part of their Indian culture, so they said, well, you don't have to 
drop your story of Rama, just say that Rama was a Buddha in a previous lifetime and then stick with it. It's like Buddhism coming to America and we say the Buddha was Paul Bunyan in a previous lifetime. <laughs> and Ananda was his faithful ox, you know. <laughs> However, there are a couple of Jataka-type tales in the suttas. And here's a really cool one. Okay. One day King Bachana, excuse me, Bajetana said to his chariot maker, My good chariot maker, in six months' time from now a battle will take place. Can you make me a new pair of chariot wheels? Yes, your majesty, I can, the chariot maker replied to the king. Then in six months minus six days the chariot maker finished one meal, one wheel. King Bajetana said to him, In six days from now the battle will take place. Will your ch- pair of chariot wheels be finished? Your Majesty, in these six months minus six days, I finished one wheel. But can you finish the second wheel in these six days? Yes, Your Majesty, I can, the chariot maker replied to the king. Then, after having finished the second wheel in six days, the chariot maker took the pair of wheels to the king and, on arrival to him, said, said to him, Here is your new pair of chariot wheels, all finished, Your Majesty. And what is the difference between your wheel that took six months minus six days to finish and your wheel that took six days to finish? I don't see any difference between them at all. There is a difference between them, Majesty. Look at the difference. Then the chariot maker took the chariot wheel that took six days to finish and set it rolling. Going as far as its momentum carried it, it twirled around and around and fell to the ground. But then he took the chariot wheel that took six months minus six days to finish and set it rolling. Going as far as its momentum carried it, it stood still as if fixed on an axle. Pretty impressive skill. Yeah? Now, what is the reason, my good chariot maker? What is the cause why the chariot wheel that took six days to finish when set rolling goes as far as its momentum carries it and then twirling around and around falls to the ground? And what is the reason why the other one didn't? Okay, Your Majesty, as for the wheel that took six days to finish, its rim is crooked its faults and flaw- with faults and flaws. Its spokes are crooked with faults and flaws. Its hub is crooked with faults and flaws. Because its rim, spokes, and hub are crooked with faults and flaws, when set rolling it goes as far as its momentum carries it and then twirling around and around falls to the ground. But as for the wheel that took six months minus six days to finish, its rim is not crooked with no faults or flaws. Its spokes are not crooked with no faults or flaws. Its hub is not crooked with no faults or flaws. Because its rim, spokes, and hub are not crooked with no faults or flaws, when set rolling it goes as far as its momentum carries it, and then stands still as it's fixed on an axle. Now, monks, the thought may occur to you that the chariot maker on that occasion was someone else, but it shouldn't be seen in that way. I, myself, was the chariot maker on that occasion. I was skilled in dealing with the crookedness and faults and flaws of wood. Now I am a worthy one, rightly self-awakened, skilled in dealing with the crookedness, faults and flaws of bodily action, skilled in dealing with the crookedness, faults and flaws of verbal action, skilled in dealing with the crookedness, faults and flaws of mental action. This is any monk or nun in whom the crookedness, faults and flaws of bodily action are not abandoned, Verbal action, metal action, and non-abandoned has fallen away from this Dharma discipline just like the wheel that took six days to finish. But any monk or nun in whom the crookedness, faults, and flaws of bodily action, verbal action, and mental action are abandoned stands firm in this Dharma discipline just like the wheel that took six months minus six days to finish. Thus you should train yourself. We will abandon crookedness, faults, and flaws in bodily action, verbal action, and mental action. That's how you should train yourselves. Okay, here he's taking a story from the past and using it as a, you know, it's a vivid teaching metaphor. But in basically also making the point that Dharma practice is a skill. It requires the skill of a really good carpenter, if not more. Because those are some of the ways in which the Buddha teaching uses the teaching on rebirth in the form of babancha, I mean, taking, talking about beings existing, or what you were, or what I was, or whatever. And he uses it for various purposes to get you motivated to practice the Dharma. And notice it is primarily an issue of motivation here. It's not explaining how to go beyond rebirth. It's just basically saying this is why you would want to think about going up beyond rebirth. Any questions on any of these passages? Jeff? So how do you reconcile um, his chastising Sati in, in Majjhima and Nikaya 36 for saying, you know, th- it's the same self that transmigrates. And then in other passages, he will say, oh, so-and-so died and they were reborn in this, this realm. You know, as, it's a linear self. progression. Sati doesn't say self, he says consciousness. But still, how would you reconcile? Okay, well, it's not, he says it is this consciousness that doesn't change. 
then the Buddha says, look, it's, your consciousness is changing all the time. I think he says it's reborn, uh, the consciousness that's reborn. It's yeah, the but same Sati says it's the same consciousness that is reborn. Yeah. And the Buddha says it's, it's, it's a different consciousness. But then, he, then he'll go on another passage and say, oh, this venerable one has died. Like okay, well, if you look at consciousness as, as a thing, the Buddha would deny that. If you look at it as a process, that's something else. But it was an identity of a person in this life, and now they have an identity in their next okay, life. Okay, if you talk about the identity of a process, it's different from talking about the identity of a substance. So he's speaking metaphorically in those passages when he's n- naming an individual that then... Again, it is... You, you can make the same analogy, you know, Jeff Harden when he was, um, you know, a teenager and Jeff Harden when he's ha- sitting here holding the mic right now. Is this the same Jeff Harden? No. No. Okay. It's the same sort of thing. Okay. Okay, so here we go. Any more issues? Okay, now we're going to go rebirth without Babancha. And this is pretty quick. Gosh, we're almost done. I'll have you out of here before four. Okay. Okay, okay now remember how, we, how the Buddha defined being. Being is a process. It's a process that's caused by obsession, it's caused by getting caught up on passion and desire. So here's a question. But Master Gotama, this is Wachagota talking to him. At the moment a flame is being swept on by the wind and goes a far distance, what do you designate as its clinging or sustenance then? And, watch, and he says, Watch when a flame is being swept on by the wind and goes a far distance, I designate it as wind sustained, for the wind is its clinging sustenance at that time. This, this slashed word here, clinging and sustenance, has to do with the fact that you know, fire was believed to burn because it was feeding and clinging at the same time to its fuel. And when the fire let go, then the fire went out. Okay? So, the, so as long as fire is burning, it has to have something that it is clinging to. And the question is, when the fire goes you know, from one tree to another and they don't see any physical connection between the trees, how does it go that way? And the Buddha says it's clinging to the wind. Okay? And then he says, at that moment, when a being sets this body aside, is not yet born in another body, what do you designate as this clinging sustenance then? He says, when a being sets this body aside, is not yet reborn in another body, I designate it as craving sustained, for a craving is its clinging sustenance at that time. So he's pointing at it more as a process. It's the craving that sustains you. And remember, the being here is no, is no longer a thing. We're thinking of the being as a process of attachment. So the attachment to the cra- craving is what carries over. So he's talking about here as a process. Then he continues talking in the next page, the next, next passage. Where there is passion, delight, and craving for the nutrient of physical food, consciousness lands there and increases. Where consciousness lands and increases, there is the alighting of name and form. Where name and form here would be physical and mental phenomena. Where there is the alighting of name and form, there is the growth of fabrications. Where is the growth of fabrications, there is the production of renewed becoming in the future. Where there is the production of renewed becoming in the future, there is future birth, aging, and death. Together, I tell you, with sorrow, lamentation, and affliction—excuse me, sorrow, affliction, and despair—and this is similarly with the nutriment of sensory contact, intellectual intention, and nutriment of sensory consciousness. So again, it's this process of passion, craving, and delight for these nutriments of consciousness that allows consciousness to land there. Now, it turns out in the next passage, it says, "Well, where do these things come from? They are born from craving." So what you've got here is a process where craving and consciousness form a cause for each other. This is why the process is self-sustaining. Because you've got the craving performs is the cause. It's just the craving is what underlies the nutriment. Consciousness then feeds on the nutriment. It has craving for the nutriment. And that consciousness and craving gives rise to more craving, which then performs, provides more nutriment. So it's the process that feeds itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is why rebirth is a possibility, because you, unless you stop it, the process can keep on going. We talked the other day about three, three analogies that the Buddha uses when he's talking about clinging and feeding. And one, of course, is just the physical process of eating. 
Another is the process of a seed feeding off of soil. And the third is this one about a fire feeding off of its fuel. Um, in this particular one, he's, he's talking about how the process is self-sustaining. You don't need to think about a thing underlying it that's going to sustain it because the process sustains itself. And there are two ways you could use the, you know, the other feeding analogies. The fire one doesn't work here because fire, you know, basically once it's burned its fuel, its fuel is out and it can't burn it again. However, <coughs> with plants, a f- you know, s- seed feeds on the soil, gives rise, to, gives rise to a plant, the plant dies, it becomes more soil, another seed can land there and can continue eating. Now, if we think in terms of um, human feeding, the, process, the, the, the analogy gets so gross you don't even want to think about it. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons I think the Buddha never mentioned it, that one in, this, in this context. <laughs> but I think it's a useful process to think about. Okay. What gets left over when you've eaten? Mm-hmm. And he's basically saying that's what we're feeding on. <laughs> no, no, it's but it's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. repeat the question. Mm. Right, right. Because he's, as I said, because the process is one of craving and clinging, it is something you actually do something about. You have the choice to bring knowledge to it or not bring knowledge to it. If you bring knowledge of the Four Noble Truths to it, you can stop the process. It's, and it's through looking at it as a process that you can stop it. And we noticed earlier when he was talking about rebirth in terms of Babancha, there's only that one case where you actually get somebody to drop everything think starting out in terms of a bunch and then they move to this process of gosh I want to do whatever I can to stop this process and totally but when he's talking about how to look at the process in such a way you really can stop it this is where you have to look at it you know, as, as a process and stop the babancha about the I am this or I am that just look at it in personal terms there is this food for consciousness there is this craving this clinging and get the I am out of it Starving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Okay. <clears throat> so the Buddha goes on in um, passage 25 to give an analogy. It says, like the earth property is how the four standing spots for consciousness should be seen. Now the four standing spots for consciousness are form, feeling, perception, and fabrication. Like the liquid property is how delight and passion should be seen. Now the liquid property here is the water that feeds the seed. Like the five means of propagation is how consciousness together with its nutriment should be seen. Now propagation here is, is different ways that plants are propagated and seeds are one of them. I can't remember all the other five. I mean they're runners and clippings, runnings and cli- runners and clippings and joints and I've forgotten what the fifth one was. But anyway, anything that has, has this property of being like a seed. Conscious together with its nutriment, those four qualities of contact, consciousness, ignorance, and intention. That's like the seed, which will then stand, which will then feed off of the other aggregates, and it's watered by delight and passion. That's what allows this seed to grow. Should consciousness, when standing, stand attached to a physical form, supported by form as its object, landing on form, watered with delight, it would exhibit growth, increase, and proliferation, and similarly with the other four aggregates. If someone were to say, I will describe a coming, a going, a passing away, and a rising, a growth, an increase, or proliferation of consciousness, apart from form, feeling, perception, fabrications, that would be impossible. Now, if you abandon passion for the property of form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness, okay, then with the abandoning of passion, the support is cut off and there's no landing of consciousness. 
In other words, it's through the passion that allows the consciousness to keep on, to keep the process going. Consciousness, not having landed, not increasing, not concocting, is released. Owing to its release, it is steady. Owing to its steadiness, it is contented. Owing to its contentment, it is not agitated. Or not agitated, he or, or she, the monk or the nun, is totally unbound right within. You discern that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done, there's nothing further for this world. So can, when you look at all these things in impersonal terms without bunchizing them, without objectifying them, then you can see that you can develop dispassion for them. And one of the first things that you release, when, the first things you realize after you've gained release or gained unbinding, is that birth is ended. Okay, that process of birth stops. I think I think that's really interesting. Is that one of the first things that really hits you after awakening is that no more birth. It's it's immediate, and there and there are two or three different standard formula for talking about the realization of full awakening, and each one of them is after there's release, you realize no more birth. That's it. Any questions about that one passage? Mike? So probably my biggest passion in the world is food. Mm -hmm. I like to cook it. I like to eat it. Mm -hmm. I enjoy it. Is it possible to attain liberation (laughs) in the state? (laughs) You You have to develop a very, what's the word? You've got to look carefully at that passion for food. And, I mean, there are lots of contemplations. Like every day in the monastery, we have a contemplation that, you know, I'm eating this food just to keep the body going enough so I can practice. I don't want to eat it for the pleasure or for the just for the joy of it or putting on bulk or whatever. I'm eating it just to keep going. I certainly do eat for pleasure and I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. That, that's probably yeah. the question I'm asking. Yeah. And so you've got to contemplate, okay, to what extent is your eating motivated by you know, the, the, these motivations that are blameless? And then you think of the fact that you know, you're eating an awful lot more than you actually need to. And that means you're placing a burden on some poor animal or plant or farmer or somebody out there who needs to do all this work to get the food to your t- you know, into, into your kitchen. I've started thinking about that. Yeah. Yes. You probably know the story of the, the baby in the desert. If I tell this story, nobody's going to leave any, any Don in the box. Um. <laughs> so I'm going to tell it. Um, Steve told me not to, not to talk about rebirth until there was, everybody had put their Don in the box. <laughs> the Buddha's talking about how you should look at physical food. And he says, suppose there's, there's a family, mother and father, and they have one baby child, and they're going across the desert. And they get stuck in the middle of the desert, and they have no more food. Can see where this is going, okay? Um, and they realize that if they don't have any more food, all three of them are going to die. So rather than have all three of them die, they kill the baby. And get this, they make jerky. Um. <laughs> and then they make their way across the desert. Now, as they're eating the baby jerky, he says, "How do you think they're going to feel? <laughs> feel about the fact that they're eating their child?" Are they going to eat for, for enjoyment or pleasure or whatever? No. They're going to be crying. I mean, this is, this is our child that we love so much, and this is what we had to do. He says, you should have that same attitude towards physical food. Whew. <laughs> it's, it's in the Sanyutta Nikaya. 1263 or 1264, something like that. It's called A Son's Flesh. Yes. (laughs) The detail I like is making jerky. I don't know. (laughs) Every time we go camping in Utah, we stop off. There's a town in Baker. Have you ever been in Baker, California? And they have that Greek restaurant that's really good. They also now have, an, have, a, have a store that's called Alien Jerky. <laughs> 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 I 
And I must admit, think, I think about baby jerky every time I go past that store. Okay. okay. Whew. Any, anyone dare ask another question? <laughs> <laughs> excuses the excuses for the monks and that's up to lay people to decide what, what kind of food they're fixing why is it not an injunction like so many other injunctions we have? I guess the Buddha he said he was not going to put injunctions on people's feeding one passage you used the term transmigration is mm-hmm. that the same Pali or is it that in rebirth or the well there's a word samsara, samsara. which is a process of, of, of transmigration or wandering there's another there's, I'm, I'm, I've got samsara is wandering on I cannot for the life of me remember what I translated as transmigration okay, okay here's the point at which the Buddha describes his own awakening. Okay, first, he, you know that his first sermon is called the Dharma Wheel? Do you know why it's called the Dharma Wheel? <laughs> you know why it's called the Dharma Wheel? Okay, back in his time, there, when you had, and this was used both in philosophy and legal documents, if you had two two sets of variables or more sets of variables that you're going to run against each other. Like you say you have three, three variables on this side and four variables on this side, and then you have to do the whole list of the 12 permutations. Of, that was called a wheel. You see a lot of this in the Vinaya texts. You know, when they, talk, when they, they give you a rule and they say, okay, what is your motivation? What was the object? What was the whatever? And then, you run, and then there's this whole list of... Um, they go through all the various permutations. That's called a wheel. Now, in the, in the wheel of Dharma, the, th- the wheel that the Buddha was presenting was the Four Noble Truths, and each Noble Truth was to be known in three ways. And so he goes through and he lists the three ways that you know this truth. One is that you, you know the truth. You're looking like, this is stress, or this is the cause, or the origination of stress. Then the second thing is you know that the, the duty that's appropriate to that truth. For, for instance, with stress, the duty is to comprehend it. For the origination of stress, the duty is to abandon it. For the cessation of stress, the duty is to realize it, and the path is to be developed. So, comprehension, abandoning, realization, and developing. In fact, this is why we have Four Noble Truths, is because each of the truths has a different duty. It's a category that you apply to your experience, so you can know what duty you have. Then finally, the third level of knowledge is knowing that you've completed the duty. You've totally comprehended stress, you've totally abandoned its cause, you've totally realized its cessation, and you've totally developed the path. So that was, that's the wheel in the Wheel of Dharma. And the, here's the Buddhist the passage that comes right after the wheel. He says, as long as this, my three-round, twelve permutation knowledge and vision concerning these Four Noble Truths, as they have come to be, was not pure, I did not claim to have directly awakened to the right self-awakening, unexcelled in the cosmos with its devas, maras, and brahmas, with its people, with their contemplatives and brahmins, their royalty and common folk. But as soon as this, my three-round, twelve permutation knowledge and vision concerning these Four Noble Truths, as they have come to be, was truly pure, then I did claim to have directly awakened to the right self-awakening, unexcelled in the cosmos with its devas, maras, and brahmas, with its people, with their contemplatives and brahmins, their royalty and common folk. Knowledge and vision arose in me. Unprovoked is my release. This is the last birth. There is now no further becoming. So again, here's a case where right after realizing his release, the first thing that hits him is, this is it, the last birth. This is not going to happen again. It was a birth, though. Well, his his birth as a Buddha was a birth. Mm -hmm. 
And then the question comes always, what's left after the cessation of these six sense media? And this is similar to the question about, you know, does the Tathagata exist or not exist, both or neither, after death? Here's Mahagotita and Sariputta. Mahagotita is, uh, he's an arahant. And so I guess you were the case here, when he's talking to Sariputta, he's talking for the, usually for the edification of the people sitting around. He's going to ask some good questions of Sariputta. He says, with the reindeerless cessation and fading of the six contact media, vision, hearing, smell, taste, touch, and intellection, is it the case that there's anything else? Sariputta says, don't say that, my friend. With the remainderless cessation and fading of the six contact media, is it the case that there is not anything else? Don't say that, my friend. Is it the case that there both is and is not anything else? Don't say that. Is it the case that there neither is nor is not anything else? Don't say that. So Gaudi says, okay, how am I supposed to understand this? And Sariputta says, the statement, with the remainderless cessation and fading of the six contact media, is it the case that there is anything else? Objectifies the non-objectified. In other words, there is the state of nirvana has no objectification at all, and yet when you're talking about it, you're trying to objectify it. You're turning it into a thing that can either exist or neither, or both exist or not, both or neither, and so on with the, last, the rest. So that's the ultimate state where there is no objectification at all. So with the remainderless fading and cessation of the six contact media, there comes to be the cessation, the allaying of objectification. In, in the Kula Sunyata Sutta? Jula Sunyata. Sorry? Jula Sunyata. Oh, sorry. Um, there's the four formless, there's earth, and then the four formless, and then there's cessation. And then it says something at the end, but I, if I recall, it was there are the six senses mm-hmm. signless. No, you've got two of them mixed up. Oh. There's the signless concentration, the directed concentration of something else. You go through state. those. And then after there's awakening, okay, then af- after the moment of awakening, as long as you're still alive, there are going to be the six sense media. But that's it. I mean, there's not going to be stress around them. But no, they're signless. Uh, animita, didn't they? No, 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 the no. animita is, applies to something else. Oh, okay. Yeah. But no stress. But no stress, the, for the mind, no. What does the phrase, the signless deliverance of the mind, refer to? Okay, the question is, what is the signless deliverance of the mind referring to? There are three states of concentration that for some reason don't fit into the set of eight attainments. And they're usually listed after state of perception, neither perception or non-perception. There's the signless, there's the undirected, and there's the empty. And the signless means that you, you, you signless can also be translated as themeless. We talk about meditation having a theme. The mind is still, but it's not concentrated on any theme at that point. It's a very subtle level of concentration. The undirected is there's no act of will. And the empty is that it is empty of any 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 stress. And that's then in turn related, if I remember this, related to the, the three characteristics, or as you said the other day, the three perceptions. Um, you get there if you, from anatta, you get to um, emptiness. Yeah, that I mean that's that's the commentary's connection. I think there may be there may be something in the canon. I'm not sure. But yeah. I mean, there, it is possible to hit these stages of concentra- concentration through using the three perceptions. And this is something that people miss. You think that you know, if, you, if you apply the three perceptions, you're going to go straight to insight. Whereas there, there are some subtle levels of concentration that you can attain simply by applying those three, se- three, three perceptions. And those, those, those states of concentration are fabricated. So here we've arrived at the end of, of objectification, or proliferation, or however else you want to translate this. Okay. The point being that you, it's a type of thinking that gives rise to conflict, and you will have to use it to some extent in the practice to motivate yourself, both in the sense of defining yourself as capable of doing the practice and wanting to do this practice for the sake of your happiness. Um, you can also use it when you're talking about rebirth as a way of motivating yourself to practice. But there comes a point where you have to learn how to set it aside, so you're not putting this idea of the self inside or the world out there on top of your immediate experience. Because what the Buddha wants you, again and again, the emphasis is, look at your immediate experience because the causes of suffering are right here. 
And also all you need to know for, to put an end to suffering is also apparent right here as well. Um, and by looking at things as processes, it makes it a lot easier to let them stop. If you have some sense that's, you know, if, I, if this stops, that's the end of me, I'm out of here, you're going to hold on. But if you learn how to get the mind in the state of, this is one of the reasons why concentration is so important, you have to have a sense of well-being while you're doing this. If you're feeling threatened by letting go, if you're not stable enough, it's scary. But if there's a sense of stability, well-being, you see something arising, this is stress, okay, I can let that go. And then after a while, the momentum of letting go gets strong enough so that even your sense of identity, you can begin to let that go as well. Whew. I suppose I should make, make a more comprehensive conclusion, but that's, it's the end of the day. <laughs> that's the problem with these courses. You put all the subtle stuff at the end, and by the time you get to the end, everybody's burned out. So. Any last questions, comments, suggestions, attacks? <laughs> yes. Mike? Right, right there. This is a very light question. Um, it seems that in the Buddha's time, there's lots of stories of people becoming enlightened, seemingly um, very, sometimes very quickly, the first time they heard a teaching, and then they became enlightened. And that we don't hear, at least I don't hear about this as much. Do you happen to know yourself, someone who is enlightened? I've known some people who I think are totally enlightened, yeah. Are they still alive? Are they in Burma or Thailand? Or? <laughs> Wait a minute. Does being in Burma or Thailand mean they're dead? I mean, no, the ones I know are in Burma and Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, my feeling is, you know, the, the Buddha was basically harvesting all the fruit that was ready to pick. And where are those little last fruits that are still left hanging on the tree, hoping to ripen before things get too cold or whatever? But, so yeah, he had it a lot easier than we do nowadays, in terms of his students. Um, yes? There's an interesting passage where the, the Buddha compares, you know, t- there's a case where, <laughs> this sounds a little sexist, there's a man who um, is very poor, he lives in a little shack, not the best sort. He has a wife, not the best sort. <laughs> he has just a plain bed, not the best sort. He has a little broken pot with just a few pumpkin seeds, not the best sort. And yet he can't give them up. And then there's a the case of another man who has many wives and a beautiful palace and everything is just really nice, and yet he manages to give them up. So it's, it's, not, the, it's not the things you're giving up so much as your attitude. Now in, in Thailand, especially in the time of the, the Ajans, it was the, it was the children of farmers who actually had a much better, better chance than the, the children of the rich people. I mean, you look at all the great Ajans, and they all came from very poor families. So I'd say it's, it's really just an individual matter. You start where you are. Question? Do we need a mic at this point? Yes, yes we do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Do I have um, no hope of enlightenment unless I give up everything that I love and am attached to? Learn how not to be attached. You know. So you can still do it all, but you can't be attached to it. <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> you do have to give up. You do have to give up some things, you know. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so you start out by giving up what you can give up, and then you practice, and then you find, gosh, my practice isn't going any further. Maybe I should give up something more. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say give up everything all at once, because that's... <laughs> it's hard to survive. But think about, okay, what can I give up right now? What can I conceive of myself giving up and give it up for a time being? So the more you can give up, the better, in other yeah, words. Yeah, the more you can give up, the better. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. In, some of, in some of your teachings, the little basics tapes or whatever, you mentioned once in a while, the Buddha was very clever, and he... And he and all, every Speak step, in the mic. 
every step of the path, he gives you much uh, gold for candy. Mm -hmm. Like the concentration, the, the pleasure of that. After a while, you don't want to think about sensual pleasure anymore. Mm -hmm. So, so it's like it's not just giving up, giving up, giving up. From your teachings, I gather it's you can find the reward in it every step of the way. The thing is, so sometimes when you're giving up and you don't see the reward right away, and that's where you need the strength of character. So I'm going to stick with this, and that's where conviction comes in. Anything else? Robert? One last one. Um, is it a microphone? Yeah. So with concentration, Bhante, the, um, the aspect of it that's so enjoyable, so that also has to be given up, correct? Eventually, yes. Eventually. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that we should ignore the cultivation of concentration. No, no, no. no. You've got to keep doing it. It's, um, you know, it is the path. Mm -hmm. And you think about the history of the path, which was the factor that Buddha that would have discovered first. It was right concentration. And when he talked about the, the relationship among the different factors, he focused on right concentration having the assistance of the other seven factors. So right concentration really is the heart of the path. And you do it. Um, the question of being attached to it, you know, I, I know of only one, maybe two suttas in the canon where the Buddha talks about the dangers of attachment to the concentration. Mm -hmm. He talks a lot more about the dangers of being attached to sensuality. You, you think about it for a minute. How many people killed other people over jhana? <laughs> <laughs> so, so in terms of the middle path, mm -hmm. the the bliss of concentration is not is not the uh, what he's referring to on that side. No, rather. no. Okay, no. The middle path is so. that you actually use the bliss, bliss of concentration, so you're not getting involved in the in either self-affliction or sensual, sensual pleasure. Okay. So it's really sensual pleasure that he's talking about in terms of the middle past. Right. That, that was my understanding. Right. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I was struck by your comment that many of the people that were enlightened um, were uh, children of farmers. Mm -hmm. And I saw a movie last night called Urban Roots, and it's about the insurgence of um, community farms and grassroots efforts to feed people in these difficult times. And it's set in Detroit, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where I grew up. And um, I think one of the uplifting parts of the film was that people felt empowered, mm -hmm. and this the skillful part of papancha, um, be, your abilities mm -hmm. to cultivating the ability to feed yourself mm -hmm. um, in maybe a skillful way uh, seemed um, to fit in with what you were saying about the ability to give up things because you have this ability, innate ability to provide mm -hmm. for yourself and maybe other people. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any other thoughts about that, that? Ideas. Well, a lot of it has to do with, I mean, in John Fung's case, um, he was an orphan at an early age. And I think it was age 16, he looked at his life and he said, I'm pretty hopeless. I've, I'm an orphan. I have no connections. Didn't do well in school. I've got to make a lot of merit. <laughs> um, and so that was, what, that was his initial impulse to start practicing. And you look at the society and, and that was a time when there was this reform movement coming out from Bangkok, and it was came out of the royal family, and very educated monks, and they were the ones that basically said, "Okay, we know what's going on here. Um, nirvana is no longer possible. Jhana is no longer possible." And so that cuts off the possibility for you know any kind of any kind of real attainment if you believe that. And uh, John Munn happened to be out in the, in the forest. And he, he that that particular message hadn't gotten out into the forest yet, <laughs> and so he wasn't wasn't you know bound by it or oppressed by it. And there's there there does come that point where you say, look, I, it doesn't matter what they're saying about what I can and can't do. I'm going to practice. 
and a lot of it is motivated just by, as you know, John Mun said, John Abu said, and John Mun just said he had seen so much suffering in his life, he just had enough. There must be a way out. You look a lot of his Dharma talks, and he's you know, he's talking to you know, children of peasants, and he's saying, "Look, you've got what it takes. You've got a human body, you've got a human mind. That's all you need. Just you know, put in the effort and." Use your powers of observation to the best you can. That's what it takes. So even though this is sounds very complex, I mean, you just start start taking things apart. And you can recognize, okay, I'm. This is a process I can watch. It's right in my immediate experience. And this is again what the Buddha is getting at. All you need to know or you need to deal with is something you can experience directly. It takes you know, using your powers of observation, being very honest with yourself about what you're seeing. But it is something that's that's possible. Okay. Okay. I hope this has been helpful. Thank you for your attention.